Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Amy Bloom, and this is an excerpt from the first story in my new collection, Where the God of Love Hangs Out. The title is Your Borders, Your Rivers, Your Tiny Villages, which is a line from a Pablo Neruda poem. At two o'clock in the morning, no one is to blame. We'd been watching CNN, one scene of disaster leading to the next, the reporter in front of what might have been a new anthrax outbreak giving way to the military analyst in the studio with new developments in Kabul when William put his hand on my breast. My husband was asleep upstairs dreaming of making the deal that would put us on high ground when the entire economy collapsed, and William's wife was asleep in the guest room, getting her restorative eight hours. I think of Isabel as forcefully regular and elegant in all of her habits, and I'm sure she thinks of me as a little askew in all of mine. William's hand trembled slightly. Our two plain gold wedding bands twinkled in the light of the TV screen. He touched my breast through the bathrobe and my pajamas. I had dressed for TV with William as if for bundling for a very long time. His touch through wool and flannel should have been numbing in its dreamy repetition, but it was not. It captured my whole body's attention. We kept our eyes on the TV. I heard him breathing hard and damp, and I put a hand on his big belly. It does not seem possible that we are people with three children, two marriages, and a 110 years between us. The first time I ever made out in a car, it was with Roger from Far Rockaway. We were trying to end the war in Vietnam by flooding the local draft board with mail and marching in front of it whenever our class schedules allowed. I had spoken at a big rally wearing an electric blue nylon halter top and my tight bell bottoms with a crucified Jesus painted on the right leg. I pretended not to know, and it might have been that I actually did not know then why some people found this offensive. I'm not mocking Jesus, I told my mother. I'm just representing him on my jeans. Roger circled around the parking lot after the rally, and he offered me a ride in his gold Camaro. We drove to Jones Beach, miles from the protest, miles from social studies and home ec, and we stayed in the car while the waves crashed and we worked at each other, hands and mouths, necks and elbows. This boy, who was not my idea of a lover and not even my idea of a date, had my body humming, dancing a tiny, fierce dance in the back seat. His hands under me and his mouth pressed against me as if the rest of the world could sink into the ocean out there and we would not even blink or maybe, yes, we would blink dully just once before we returned to the real world of me and his mouth. Later we went to his prom and I saw that he couldn't dance, which I hadn't known, and that his eyes were much too close together, which I had known and had ignored, and I was a big disappointment to him that night. William whispered something to me, but they were showing night bombing in the north, and I couldn't hear him over the shouting correspondent. May I, he said again. William is English, and he has beautiful manners. He has never failed to open the door, to pull out the chair, to slip off the coat, to bring flowers and send thank you notes, and it's not an affectation. Charles, my husband, is the same way, and it's not an affectation in him either. They are both sons of determined English mothers and quiet American fathers who let their wives have their way. And Charles and William are friends, and Isabel and I are friends. And it is all just as bad as it sounds. The close friendship has always been between me and William from the moment we stood snickering together at that first faculty meeting until now. And everybody knows that William and I are 
inexplicably but truly best friends. I think that his size and my shyness and, of course, Isabel's beauty and Charles's good looks give us permission to love each other and hold hands in public, looking, I'm sure, like a woolly mammoth and a stiff-tailed duck, just that odd and just that ridiculous. Even when they move back to Boston after their one year in New Haven, back to his university and her real estate business, we stayed friends. Isabel and I have had pedicures together. We've dissected our husbands. We've considered the possibility that a little injection around the mouth might not be a bad idea. All four of us have sat at our kitchen tables talking through their daughter's suicidally bad time in Prague and our son Danny's near engagement to an awful girl from Bryn Mawr. And I like that William is such a good storyteller, and she likes that Charles is so clever with his hands. And when we visit, she gives him a honey-do list, and he pops around their house with his toolbox all afternoon, and Isabel follows behind, handing him nails and a caulk gun while William and I play Scrabble. She used to ask me for advice on getting William to watch his weight, which I gave, which was useless, and I felt terrible for her. After his first heart attack, she called me in tears, and I thought, well, of course he has got to exercise and drink less and stop smoking and cut out the bacon, and if I were his wife, I would have him on egg whites and a thimble full of sherry, but I'm not. And he called me from the hospital and said, please eat some butter for me, and we continued to meet at every intriguing restaurant he'd hear about, lobster in the rough, or a place for chicken dinner, and we spent half a day finding a little store in Kent that served outstanding macaroni and cheese. We've come to our quartet already grown up, with our long-standing convictions and habits and odd ways in place, and none of us has changed very much since we met. Isabel is much fitter, and William is a little fatter, and Charles dropped tennis for golf and comes home flushed and handsome, cursing cheerfully about his handicap and his stroke. Charles and William and Isabel email one another news every day when we're together, Charles and William watch CNN for hours, drinking their Guinness. They talk like they've just come from a meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Isabel joins in, perching on the end of the sofa near William, clucking her tongue when the scroll at the bottom of the screen says, Airstrikes hit all al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. During the raid, Israeli forces arrested 10 Palestinians and killed six. I don't know if she's clucking because six isn't enough or it's way too much. Isabel reads the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every day, and I don't. It's not as if I waltz around the homestead with a big bow and my blonde curls, picking daisies, waiting for the grown-ups to sit down to the nice dinner I've made. I teach. I go to the movies. I talk to my grown sons frequently. One is a news watcher. One is a news avoider. And all that matters to me is that they live in small, safe towns in the Midwest, and neither has children. I don't watch the news with my friends' avidity. I have not constructed a mental map of Afghanistan so that I can track troops, bombs, and food drops, and I will not even discuss whether or not we should call Bobby Bernstein, Charles's new golfing partner, and ask him for vaccines. William and I had a date to watch Mrs. Dalloway. Charles and Isabel kissed goodnight the way we often kiss one another, something a little more than lips on cheek, nicely suggestive of restrained passion as if... Under just the right circumstances, Charles and Isabel and William and I would just fall upon each other. Let's watch a bit of the news first, William said. I made popcorn for later. We would sit with my feet in his lap, and he would ask for another beer and more salt, and I would get them. And then William would sigh with pleasure at having everything he wanted. And so would I. The Appalachian Trail through New Jersey is like the road to hell. And my boyfriend Danny and I had slogged through swamp and low water past dozens of orange blazes, which indicated not trail, but possible paths through purgatory, until in the dark we finally found a flat, meadowy place. 
As soon as we stopped moving, mosquitoes descended upon us, attacking every moist, warm spot. They flew into our eyes and our mouths, our ears, burrowing through our wet, salty hair to our scalps. And trying to be quick in their buzzing black fog, we threw down our tarps and our sleeping bags and dove into them, clothes and boots still on. It was 80 degrees outside. It was 95 in our sleeping bags. But the choice was to be bitten all night or lie in pools of sweat until dawn. Danny zipped our bags together, and we rolled back to back, rank and itching, and as I recall, furious with each other, me because he had picked this trail, and him because I laughed unkindly every time he unfolded our Sierra Club map and said, this looks right. Just before dawn, the bugs disappeared to digest and rest up to prepare for the second wave. We lay there, stuck together from hip to collarbone, faces turned away from each other until it was light enough to leave. William said to me, Come here, on top of me. Come sit on my lap, darling. In six years, he has never called me anything but my name. One time when we were chatting on the phone and his other line rang, he said, Hold on a tick, dear. I climbed up on him just as he asked, and I draped myself over his stomach, resting my face against his shoulder, kissing it through his shirt. I unbuttoned his collar and ran my fingers around his thick neck into his hair and down through the gray hairs beneath his undershirt. Oh, yes, he said. I turned around and lay back against him, and he cut my breasts under my pajama top, and we watched Jeff Greenfield, and then the young woman who dyed her hair brown to go to Afghanistan. At least it's not Fox News, William said. Fox News, bloody Bill O'Reilly, pandering little hairball. And he put his hands around my waist and pressed me close to him, and I could feel his stomach, his shirt buttons, and his belt buckle against my spine. You should have known me twenty years ago, he said, thirty years ago, back in my flowering youth. I said that I was just as glad not to have known him in his flowering youth, and that it had never occurred to me that I would know him this way, even in his autumnal splendor. What now, he said, and we both looked to the right and the left, to Isabel on one side and Charles on the other and the television in front of us. I shrugged, and I felt William shrug too. Face me, he said. I miss seeing you otherwise. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.